Thank you. You can be seated. Hey, I just want to, like, I was gone last week on my 41st anniversary with Cindy. All credit goes to her for putting up with me that long, and I just so appreciated what Jed had to say. I listened to it the very next morning, and, uh, but I didn't get a chance to thank all of you who are part of, uh, you know, uh, giving to our capital improvement fund. I want to let you know we didn't hit our big goal, but we were more than halfway toward that goal, and, and we're very close to being able to complete this, the entire downstairs, including this worship center and carpet and paint. So whether you gave $10, whether you gave $10,000, and that's true, that ran the gamut, we're so grateful. And, and if you couldn't give this time, we still love you. It's like, it's, you know, like we're not here to grind you about money. Uh, we'll catch you the next time, okay, when you're doing good. So uh, thank you so much, you guys. We're super excited about uh, what's happening on our campus here, not just physically, but obviously in the lives of, of people as well. Hey, you know, like, the, the family history business is booming. You know about this, like, uh, companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, uh, in the last six years, 26 million people have taken a DNA test. And it's now a $3 billion industry. And uh, market analysts say that in the next five years, that's going to go to over $20 billion. How many of you have taken a DNA test? How many of you are thinking about it, but you're afraid about the criminals in your family's background? You'll be tied to them. Yeah, yeah I got some of those too. So uh, I just talked to somebody this morning that they just... They've had their test for two years, and they actually took it this morning. Isn't that weird? That's like, you know, this should be like a miracle thing or something. But anyway, uh, you know, we're super interested in our history. We want to find out, you know, like who our people were, you know. We probably had some great people, probably had some notorious people, and then a whole bunch of average people. But we're just super interested in that because, like, we find our identity in our history, you know, uh, we, sometimes our history explains our present, right? And it, it often directs us in our future. Our history uh, can inspire us to continue a legacy in our lives that's been brought forward through our family uh, DNA. And sometimes it makes us determined uh, to break a chain of dysfunction that's gone on in our family. And you know, uh, September 29th, as we've been talking about, is our 30th anniversary here at Sunridge. That is so amazing. And so part of that celebration and building up to this is we, we started a series last Sunday called A History of Us, where we're tracing not just like who has Sunridge been over the last 30 years, but what are our roots? What, where does it go back? And by the way, like Becky said, register for the celebration on the 29th. You guys, we want you there. It's like this is such an amazing thing that God did, and, and it's such a celebration of the people who have been at Sunridge for so many years. Some of you are brand new. Like, come and be a part of that. We just want to celebrate what God is doing through a people called Sunridge. Don't, don't miss out. It's going to be epic, epic. And, um, but anyway, uh, you know, part of this preparation for that is to look at our history all the way back through um, even the Old Testament, uh, you know, so like, if you've ever wondered, is there, is there like an Ancestry.com for the church today? There is. It's the Bible. And so uh, Jed did an amazing job of dropping us all the way back to the promise of Abraham. 
and tying some of our roots to that. And I just want to look at that in Genesis 12:1. Here's the promise that God gave to Abraham, and so to God's people of that day. Then the Lord told Abram, leave your country, your relatives, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. And I will bless, and those who bless you and curse, let me start over. Calm down, Britt. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And you know, if you were here last week, you saw that Jed talked about how the people of God were given a land. And they, God promised them a, a great name and that they would be a great nation. But if you're at all familiar with your Bible, you know the Old Testament closes out without it kind of being that way, right? Their ancestral calling is nowhere near to be found. And then there's this gap. Scholars call the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament the period of silence. It's a 400-year period where, where God is not speaking. Scripture is not being recorded. And that is symbolic of what the children of Israel at that time were, were feeling. It's like God is no longer speaking to us. First there was the Babylonians, and then there's Persia. And now when the New Testament opens up, you have the Romans. And these people that are part of the promise that God has given are under the, the oppression of the Roman Empire. And under the Romans, they don't have their land. They, ha they don't have their utopia. They, they are not a great nation. They are scattered among the nations. And their name is not great. They are just one of many ethnic groups that reside under the reign of, the, of this worldwide power known as the Romans. So their governance isn't what they wanted. It's, it's secular and it's pagan. The values of their culture that they're living in, that are surrounded in, is totally different than what they would have preferred and what, they, what their convictions are. And they're limited in how they can worship God in their time. When I was growing up, there was a fast food restaurant that had a commercial where they were, they were kind of promoting the fact that their hamburgers were bigger than anybody else's hamburgers. And so they would spoof like opening up some other hamburger joint's hamburger and lift up the bun, and, then, and, then they, and people would say, where's the beef? Anybody remember that, or is this the... Oh, okay, all right. What company was that? Wendy's, Wendy's thank you. Where's the beef? Well, I think that Wendy's got this trademark phrase from the children, the, the Jewish people of this time. Because when, when the Old Testament closes out and the New Testament starts, they're really saying, where's the promise? And then, was that almost an applause? <laughs> oh, I tell you, it's not easy being me. Thank you. Then an unknown rabbi comes on the scene. He's from an obscure little town, but he comes from a Jewish family. He studied the Jewish scriptures, and he observed the Jewish religion. And in Luke 24, 27, he starts to 
he emerges, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And in John's gospel in 539, he says, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. You see, the promise that God gave to Abraham and through Abraham to his people. The promise is fulfilled through a person, Jesus Christ. That's the first fill-in on your notes, and I want to tell you, like, there's a couple of advantages to following along in your notes. One, you'll remember all the amazing things that I've said in the next 30 minutes. That will be helpful. But then also, you can kind of see where I am in my message. You'll know how close I am to the end. So whether you're really hungry to remember or you're, you're like, just come on, you know, I want to go to breakfast. Taking notes is great. Jesus said that he came to fulfill his promise in Matthew 5, fulfill the promise, Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying these, these promises, this promise that you hold on to, in me, Jesus. These are fulfilled. The promise for God to bless you and also the promise for you to be a blessing, are, they all reside in me, Jesus Christ. How did he do that? How is it Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise? That's what we're going to talk about today there are at least three ways. Number one, Jesus made a relationship with God accessible to everyone. That's how he's the fulfillment of the, prophet, uh, of the promise. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In John 10.10, he said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what the children of Abraham wanted, and what every generation has wanted, over the years, those that believe in God, and I believe to some extent, even those that don't, is people want to know, do I matter to God? Do I matter? Does he know I exist? And Jesus Christ came to say, no matter where you come from, no matter where you are in station of life, no matter what, you know, what is going on with you right now, I came to make a relationship with God accessible to you. That's what we all want. And you know that the people of God at that time embraced that promise fully. They sucked it up. But they corrupted it. Over time, they just heard the part, I will bless you. And they became self-absorbed. And, and it created kind of a superiority in their minds toward other cultures, other people, other ethnic, ethnicities. So that even their so-called experts, those that like knew the law forwards and backwards, Jesus says of them in Luke eleven forty six, 46, you crush people beneath impossible religious demands and you never lift a finger to help ease the burden. There's like... There's such arrogance in that perspective. Like, I'm, I'm super special to God, which is fine for all of us to say. But the subscript was, and you're not. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, 
No. I love all the people of the world, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And 50 years later, the Apostle Paul echoes this concept, and he binds it with the promise to Abraham in his letter to the Galatians. These letters that we read in your New Testament that you find, they are, they are places that Paul went to preach the gospel, and they are letters that he wrote back to the church, to those churches addressing issues and concepts and theologies they needed to understand. And here he writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3.7, he says, the real children of Abraham then are all those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would accept the Gentiles too on the basis of their faith. This was unfathomable to the people of God. God promised this good news to Abraham. How could that be? No, that promise was just to us, but God promised this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. And so it is, all who have put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Listen to me. If you're a Christian, Paul says that you have the same promise through faith. That God resides in you, that he has blessed you, that he has given you something special. In verse 26, he continues, so you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all have been united with Christ in baptism have been made like him. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are one in Christ Jesus, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and now all the promises God gave to him belong to you. This, we read that, and it's like, of course, we've been swimming in the Gentile Christianity for a couple of, you know, millenniums, right? But this was completely revolutionary to a person who considered themselves a person of God. At this time, it's like there's no way that those people could be part of this program. And what Jesus did, the way he fulfilled the promise, first of all, was he made that relationship that we have with God accessible to every person. And he eliminated the categories of worthy and unworthy, deserving and undeserving, superior and inferior. And he, and he said... If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And Paul echoes this same thought and ties it to the promise. See, being a Christian is completely based in that simple faith. It's not something that you do. It's not something that you earn. It's not based on our performance. And Paul even addresses here some of those lingering categories that were part of the way they understand their exclusivity. He says, so that all of you, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, you are all Christians based in faith. Now, it, it's, you don't really find any 
historical perspective that says that early Christians didn't believe a woman could become a Christian. It's much bigger than this. There are these lingering categories, even in the church, that say that there are some people who are superior. There are some people that are more deserving. And if you just look at this text, in this time, if you were a wealthy Jewish male, you had a higher standing. And what Paul is saying here is no. All those old categories, all those ways of thinking that you bring into the church that says that there are people who are more deserving, people that are superior, inferior, because of their economic status, because of their previous religious status, or their ethnicity, or their race, or their gender. None of these things are part of the program anymore. We are saved by grace through faith. Paul wrote that in his letter to the Ephesians. So Jesus fulfilled the promise because he eliminated the categories of deserving and undeserving, and he made a relationship with God accessible to all. Number two, Jesus fulfilled the promise this way. He demonstrated what living out the promise looks like. He demonstrated what this promise looks like when people live it out, not just believe it, but live it out. Genesis 12, 2, remember part of the Abrahamic promise is, I will make you a blessing to others. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And often we read this as part one and part two. There's a blessing to you, and then you're supposed to do something with it. That's not the promise. The promise isn't two parts. It's one promise. And you, we cannot separate the blessing God has given us from why he blesses us. You see, for the people that Jesus came to first, the Hebrew people, their view of having this special relationship with God, this exclusivity, colored also how they perceived to live out their lives as people of God. And scholars will point out that there were sects, S-E-C-T-S, that arose during this time when there was like this, this turbulence in, in what they wanted from life, what, the context that they wanted to live in, and what they were actually living in. And so they react as human beings. And, and so because they had the first part wrong, this sense of superiority because of God's blessing, they get the expression of God's blessing wrong as well. And these, these groups or these sects are like, you'll be familiar with some of these phrases. Maybe, maybe, some, maybe you'll learn in more detail what these groups were. But they were all reactions to the tension of not having the fulfilled promise and living in a world that was like incongruent to their faith. So under the first one, you see there's a definition that says these are people that rigorously follow traditions and practices that set them apart from society. Next to that, put Pharisees. You might be familiar with that term. The Pharisees were, the, it actually means separated ones. 
And they took pride in their strict observance of different traditions and rules and regulations. Some were so fervent about being different that they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they were so intent on not ever lusting on a woman, they walked around with their eyes closed. And they were bruised and bleeding because they ran into things and fell down a lot. That's true. I'm not making that up. Next to uh, the category that says this, they were sophisticated, wealthy, and the pedigreed who sought advantage in society, right? Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of, if you can't beat them, join them. And they took their religion of that day and they, they tr transformed it into a way that like, allowed them to move through society successfully. These were, they, they were conservative, they were wealthy, they were politically savvy, and they knew how to navigate their culture with just enough of their faith to make sure that they succeeded. It was kind of a faith of success. Then next to sought, they sought to overthrow society through armed resistance and guerrilla warfare, you can write zealots. The zealots were like th these underground nomadic armies that would use violence against the Roman Empire, and they would attack and hide. And you, you've read about Masada before. The, this was a group of zealots. And so they, they would even resort to violence. And then the last group, you see, who withdrew from society, choosing to live in monastic communities, right next to them, the Essenes. The Essenes, they, they studied the scripture and they prayed, but they lived in monasteries. They were just totally isolated and checked out from the culture at that time. Now, each one of these groups, this is not like a hit piece against the way people reacted to this, um, this tension that they felt of wanting to live under God's promise but not really experiencing it. These are, this is human reaction. In fact, some of this might sound familiar to you. In modern Christianity and throughout the centuries, there's always been Pharisees. There's always been those of us who we react to our culture by creating rules that make us feel safe. And if we can make enough lit, a long enough list of things that we don't do that can set us apart, then, then we feel much more comfortable. And, and, and by the way, it ends up isolating us from people because no one wants to hang out with you because you're no fun. Everything's against the rules. And then we also have our modern-day Sadducees who, you know, their faith is really, honestly, it's kind of a political thing for them. Their evangelical faith is all about their economic system and, and getting getting ahead. And of course, my faith makes me rich. It's kind of where the prosperity gospel comes from. And then we've always had zealots, people that are at war with the culture and always battling, and some even resort to violence still. And we've, of course, always had the Essenes, people that, like, because the world is so crazy, we just want to, like, you know, we don't want to, like, maybe move to Utah and raise vegetables with some other people, but, like, we will tune out right? We'll totally check out and keep our safe little commune of relationships. What's missing in all these strategies in the fulfillment of the promise? Living out the promise. Being a blessing because each one of these reactions isolate us from our culture.
You know, often Jesus invited people into faith with him by saying, I want you to follow me. In Matthew 4, 19, he said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You know another way to translate that is? If you follow me, I will show you how to bless the people around you. And Christianity, at its best, has always been engaged in the world and the great problems of the world. In Jesus' day, there was compassion to the poor, to the hungry, to those who were isolated economically. Jesus broke down the categories that separated people. Christian faith has, has been involved in the abolition of uh, slavery and protecting the dignity of life. And part of our DNA as Christians today, our history, goes back to how Jesus showed us how to live out that promise. We have big, big problems today, folks. We have racism. We still have poverty. We have hunger. We have an economic divide that is widening. We have homelessness. We have the family disintegrating. And that's at the macro level. But I, all of us are experiencing that in the micro level. It's not just big problems out on CNN or ABC News. You're facing those problems in your own neighborhood, and it doesn't matter how awesome your neighborhood is. Your kids are, are facing it in their schools. They're sitting next to kids who have a lot of disadvantages. Some of you are grandparents that are raising your grandchildren because your children's family is falling apart. Who of us doesn't know someone who's going through a divorce right now? How far do you have to go from this campus to encounter homelessness in this upper middle class community? How far do you have to go to like know somebody whose life is being ruined by drugs? You know, there, uh, there's a local police department that uh, weekly posts their arrests and sometimes pictures of the person and like a little commentary. And that came up on my feed this week. And you know what? I knew one of the names. She grew up in our Sunday school here. It's like, how far do you have to go before you know that people's lives are falling apart? I don't have all the answers. It's one of the things I would really encourage you to do. This is like a little subset of what I want to say today. You have to come to our When Helping Hurts starting October 6th because a lot of what we've been doing as a Christian community has not been helping. You will, the staff went through this study. I'm telling you, it's provocative. It's going to make you think. And if we are going to be people of the promise, then we don't want to do things that don't help. That's a waste, right? I encourage you to register for that. I don't have all the answers, but I know a starting place is at our roots in Genesis 12, 2, where it says, I will make you a blessing to others. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And you know, Jesus never demonstrated isolation. He demonstrated blessing to his generation. 
That's one way he fulfilled the promise. And then last, Jesus established the entity that would represent the promise to the world. It's called the church. The church. We're going to talk more about that era in our history next week. But I want to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 13, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say uh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. In this brief conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, he notes that the relationship with God begins with this simple acknowledgement of faith. That, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are this promised one. You're the one who will fulfill the promise. And Jesus said, it's on that statement, on that belief, that I will build my church. On this rock. And a rock is like a foundation. This is, this is when you have a foundation, it's like, it's the thing you stand on. It's what makes you firm. It's what this gives every structure, every organization, every family, every person in their faith, it's the thing that gives you stability. The foundation of the church are, is our DNA. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Not just in belief. That's how we initiate it. But the following of him. And, and Jesus says to Peter... I will build my church on that. Folks, that's what we stand on today as a church. We're not, we're not Little League. We're not, you know, a dance club. We could be, but um, we're a church. And a church stands on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just like that we proclaim that we believe it and that we own it and that we have our details all right, but how we live it. And Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church on that. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In other words, the church that stands on that, the centrality of Christ, and living out the gospel through our lives, that church, hell can't stand against it. In the, in, in the picture here, the imagery here, isn't hell trying to beat down the church. It's the church pounding down the gates of hell, people. Like, we're the aggressors. Not like as zealots, but as the possessors of this, this wonderful blessing that God indwells us, that he loves us. And we take that to our day and time. And when that happens can't be stopped. In fact, if your final fill-in, if you've been tracking with me, so we are at the end, 
can breathe, breathe a sigh of relief. The church that is humbly established on Jesus Christ and lives out the calling to be a blessing to the world is unstoppable. That's what Jesus said. You know, if you look at the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, and then you look at the history of Jesus' day, and then the church, which we're going to look at next week, here's what you find. When, when the people who name the name of God turn inward, when our, when our faith becomes something that creates in us kind of like an attitude of superiority, we, we crash and burn. You wonder why the church isn't thriving today in America. You know, it's not. Why isn't it? With, with all humility, can I, can I just suggest like one thought? Could it be because we have turned inward? And we, we are not embracing the full promise of God in our day and time to be a blessing to the people around us. Jesus said to Peter that that church is unstoppable. It, it doesn't mean that we compromise, that we, that we give up on truth. It's how we possess it. And one of the things that's, that's beautiful to me about Sunridge is, and in, in, in I can see in our history as well, is God blesses this church when we, when we fully comprehend his incredible love for us and we turn that into blessing to other people, to the community that we live in, to our family, to the, to the organizations that we're a part of, to our school, to our neighborhood. When we take what God has given us and we, we translate it to the world in a way that it blesses them, we are unstoppable. And in the years of our history where we've turned inward or we've chased other things besides Jesus, we haven't done so well. So where I want to stop in our history today is to look at the life of Jesus, how accessible he made faith to us, and how, in his example of how he lived his life, that he demonstrated to us what does it mean to live out that blessing. And when we do that, our history tells us we are unstoppable. Not, not that we're going to be awesome, but that God is going to do a work through people who call themselves Sunridge. That's our history. That's our DNA. Next week, we're going to look at the early church and what becomes a movement of that promise. Until then, let's remember that God has demonstrated for us how to bless the world through the gospel that resides in us. Let's pray.